Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. I hope you're having a lovely weekend wherever you are. Now this evening, it's a big show. We are going to open up an important conversation. It's quite frankly an embarrassing topic for lots of people. It's probably one that rarely gets discussed amongst friends, if at all. And I was actually thinking about it in the drive-in. I chat with my friends about most things, but we've never chatted about this. And this is something that can happen anyone at any age. It's something that can affect us when we least expect it. And in everything we do, whether it's walking, jumping, running, dancing, laughing, even sneezing. So many people suffer from this in silence, often without ever seeking medical help. I'm talking about urinary incontinence. If you don't know what that means, it basically means passing urine without meaning to. And this can have such a significant impact. You know, I'd actually go as far as to say a devastating impact, having heard some stories during the week, on the quality of people's lives, whether it's on their confidence, on their mental health, their ability to exercise, or even to socialise. And I put up a poll during the week on my Instagram page. I was asking people, had they ever suffered from bladder leaks or incontinence before? Thousands of people got in touch, and a whopping 88%, 88% out of 100 admitted it was something that they have experienced. Because it does restrict people from living their lives. If you are experiencing it, just know that you're not alone. And I really hope today we can provide some advice and help for you. So many people have been getting in touch about their stories. It is a mortifying uh, issue. And there's no way I could go out on a golf course if I knew there wasn't a loo or, or, or bushes or trees. And it's even gone to stage now where I'm kind of not going to weddings. I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. Like mortifying, even using that word, it just shows the significance of it. Thank you to everybody for sending in the voice notes because it really does help all of our listeners. And I do get it. I get it. It's uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about things like this, but that doesn't mean we should ignore them because on on shows like this, on Supercharged, we want to normalise these types of health concerns and to remove the stigma. So this evening, I'm actually going to chat with a consultant urologist in the show about the different types of incontinence, what to be aware of, like the early warning signs, the importance of early intervention and the treatments as well. Could you imagine the stress every day of having to live with incontinence? And like I know, like we all lead stressful lives and there's things that we have to cope with. So with that said, I also want to try and alleviate that stress too. And later in the show, we'll delve into the world of meditation. We'll address some of the misconceptions actually about what we think meditation is or isn't, but also about how meditation can actually help us. And as always, if you have any questions, you can email us at supercharged at rte.ie or I love a text on 51551. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Now, a few years ago, the MAMI study of maternal health highlighted that over 51% of women reported having urinary incontinence after giving birth. Like This is such a common experience for so many of you who contacted me during the week and also for Naomi Connolly who joins me now. Naomi, welcome to Supercharged. Thank you for coming in. When did you start to have urinary incontinence issues? After I had my second child in 2011, it was quite a speedy delivery. Um, Mm -hmm. I did make it to the hospital 
and I noticed a little while afterwards that I was having some issues with leakage um, and if I moved in certain ways I was doing Pilates as well so mm-hmm. I noticed if there were certain movements that I made that I might leak a bit. Lots of women I suppose they, they say that when they're experiencing it it could be when they're running when they're jumping when they're dancing and as you said something like Pilates or moving a certain way could yeah. cause bladder leaks. How, how did you feel when that was happening? I was absolutely mortified. I, I thought it was something that only happened to older women mm-hmm. because I was only in my early 30s when I yeah. had my daughter. So I thought it would be something that would happen when I was a lot older and not in my 30s. Can I ask, how did it impact your life? I was quite embarrassed about it. I was going around trying to find, I mean, it was almost 12 years ago, so there wasn't a big thing on incontinence wear. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at sanitary towels, mm-hmm. just wearing them. And I was conscious then in case I smelled. But I didn't. But I was conscious of it just in case. Uh, how? Like, what changes did you have to make in your life because of it? Um, I was I was limited to what I would do and where I would go. Um, I had an issue once where I felt OK. I went to the shop and all of a sudden I felt the urge to go. And I was trying to walk around the shop without leaking. And it wasn't very successful. So I literally got my shopping and left and got home and cried because I had wet myself. Essentially, so I um, it took me took me a while to go and get support, but I was having physio and the physio I go to is a women's health physio. Mm -hmm. And I plucked up the courage to talk to her and ask her questions about it. And like even the fact that you're using the words, I plucked up the courage, like this is about your health and yet the embarrassment and the shame that can be surrounding this in in so many women. It's just, it's very sad that we have to suffer in silence, I guess. So what did she say when when you spoke to her about it? Um, She asked, could she examine me? Obviously she had had to see what was there, but I had uh, bladder and bowel prolapse, which was causing my urinary incontinence. So she told me then what I needed to do. I had to speak to my GP to get the referral and at the time she was able to refer me to physio as well in the maternity hospital. Mm -hmm. And in terms of support, you mentioned that word support. Were you able to speak to other people about it? What about your friends and family? I was too embarrassed at first. Now I don't mind after I got the help. I don't mind. I didn't mind, but I was I was absolutely mortified. Talk to us then about that that help, that process. Like what what did that involve for you? So for me, it was the physio. She did a referral to the maternity hospital physios who are women's health physios. Mm -hmm. So they will deal with pelvic floor health. And I got my GP to refer me then to the gynaecology department. Mm -hmm. And I was seen by a gynaecologist then to see what it was. And it was then that I was properly diagnosed with the prolapse. And what happened then from the from there, like in terms of treatment, uh, did your incontinence get worse? How did you manage it? So I had quite a few sessions of pelvic floor physio. So that involved the physiotherapist having to physically palpitate the pelvic floor muscle wow. as well. And there was ultrasound used as well. It was it was quite intensive and I was having that done. Um, I spoke then to the gynecologist and 
they asked me, was I fin- was I finished having children? And I wasn't 100% sure. Mm. So they didn't recommend surgery. But what they did offer me was a pessary that would hold my organs in place to help relieve the prolapse. So was that like a procedure you would have done to insert it? Um, yeah, it was done. I went into an outpatient's appointment. It, mm-hmm. it was like a plastic donut kind of ring that they just put inside to, su- to, to, to add support, the extra support the muscle. Yeah. Wow. And I was having the physio then as well. And once you decided that you were finished having children, was it at that point, did you get surgery? It was then that I, when when I knew I was finished, that I was put on the list for surgery. And how um, long was this timeline then from the, from the time you discovered the leaking and from the time you sought help? So it was 2011 when my daughter was born and I'd say it was probably about six months after that before I asked for help Mm -hmm. and then it was in 2014 that I had the surgery. Yeah I mean that's you know it's I suppose it really does completely encroach on your life. You're trying to raise kids you're trying to have further kids and then you're thinking about this as well. Yeah and and it was something that I had to go to have continually checked while I was deciding if I was finished having children or not because the pessary could fall out and I still needed to have the pelvic floor muscle checked. Mm-hmm. So I had to work on that myself as well. Of course, and that's it. It's about not just getting the help from the experts, it's working on it in your own spare time. Yeah. Naomi, can I ask, what advice would you give to people listening out there, people that perhaps are in were in your situation or are right now, um, and that might be feeling isolated or not even to talk to anybody. Maybe they haven't even sought medical help. Don't, don't wait. It is, it is something that can be treated and can be fixed. It is, I know it's embarrassing going in saying you're wetting yourself, but there is help available and the sooner you get in there, the better that you'll feel for yourself. You don't need to constantly go around wondering what incontinence where you might need to have or making sure there's a toilet nearby or having spare sanitary mm-hmm. towels with you just in case mm-hmm. it can be treated. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. I'm sure you have created such awareness around this, but also I've given other people hope because having heard your story, I'm sure, and I hope that people will reach out. So many people have been reaching out. Like I've actually been inundated this week with voice notes from other women experiencing so many problems around incontinence. Hi Anna, it's Maureen here. I have to say I do find this subject very embarrassing it, because it impacts on my everyday life. I'm a golfer for instance and there's no way I could go out on a golf course if I knew there wasn't a loo or, or, or bushes or trees. I spoke to my GP about this and she told me that she would send me for an abdominal ultrasound scan and that I would need a full bladder. Well, there's no way I could hold a full bladder. I, I, I find that I panic and get myself into a dreadful state if I find that I'm bursting and go to the loo. I'm sure lots of women are going through it, probably it's men as well. Hey Anna, yeah, it does hold me back, especially in exercising. I'd never run, I wouldn't be able to run now without knowing I'll end up peeing myself. I'd be worked up before doing anything or going anywhere, making sure I wear it. there's a bathroom. I'd have no children, early 30s, so I'm kind of surprised that I have this. Um, all I've been told about the doctor was do your pelvic floor exercises. I've spoken to one or two friends about it, but they all have kids, so they started laughing and said it's only when you have kids. Hi Anna, after my children were born I had um, a lot of issues with a weak bladder. My fitness was affected, I couldn't running, uh, skipping, um, 
any kind of sudden movement, any kind of bouncing. Dancing was an issue. I was using the toilet a lot. I was kind of compensating by emptying my bladder a lot, so I wasn't allowing it to fill up. Anyway, it became such an issue that I had to have a procedure done with my gynae. And then after that, I went to um, a physio and that was very helpful. Since then, I'm much better. I wouldn't say it's 100%, but it is much better. Hi, Anna. I'm a fitness instructor 20 odd years. I'm only in my mid 40s and I was fine before I had my three children. And only recently, the incontinence and bladder leaks have been getting worse. And it's at the stage where I can't go for a run without having the bladder leaks. I can't dance and I love dancing. I can't jump. So it's kind of, it never bothered me before, but it is starting to get in on me now. And before it gets too deep in on me, I have decided that even though as a fitness instructor doing all your pelvic floor work, I am going to have to go to get further help. I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life because it's a bit embarrassing. I have to wear pants like nappies. And it's even gone to stage now where I'm kind of not going to weddings or not going to parties because you wear a nice sleeky dress and then you have a big incontinence pants on underneath it. And it's just embarrassment for me. Nobody else knows this. I have not spoken to nobody else about it. This is the first time I've ever spoken out loud about it. Um, I just saw your post and I just thought it was something that related to me. And maybe by speaking out, I might help someone else. That is just a snippet of what we've heard and we'll hear a few more later on in the show. And I can actually also see some texts coming in about pelvic floor exercises to help with incontinence. And lots of us don't even know how to do them. And we actually were talking to a pelvic physiotherapist before on our sex episode in last series, Leah Bryans. And I'm wondering, maybe we could get her on the phone just to give tips about basic pelvic floor exercises. I'm looking out here at my producer, John. I think we need to make it happen. We'll try and get her during the break. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. If you've just joined us, we're talking about the issue of urinary incontinence and we have a text in here from Shane and Tala. Congratulations and well done for discussing such a deeply personal and confidential issue affecting women mainly, but also men as well. There is a very easy way to strengthen the cervical floor muscles. Please mention it. Well done to all the women speaking out so far. Shane, thank you so much for getting in touch. And it's not easy to talk about this stuff. I know that. But the more we talk about it, the more we take away the stigma. So keep those texts coming in on 51551. Now, before the break, I did say we were going to try and get Leah Bryans on the phone. And thankfully, she picked up and Leah Bryans of Leah Bryans Physiotherapy in Kilcool, County Kildare, is on the line right now. Leah, how are you doing? Hello, Anna. I'm very well, thank you. Thank how you. Are you? Thank for you for calling me. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you for jumping <laughs> on last minute. A lot of people are texting in about pelvic floor exercises. And I quickly wanted to ask... Where do they start? What can they do? Well, yeah, do you know it's tricky because we reckon only about a third of people can do it with a verbal instruction. So I'll try my best to teach you um, with only words. Mm-hmm. And I would say if you're struggling, go and see a physio because mm-hmm. we can use loads of different things to help you. So um, first I say imagine that you are a man, okay? So no matter what your gender, imagine you have male anatomy. Mm -hmm. And I want you to imagine now you're walking into freezing cold water. 
no freezing water's coming up your legs and I say to you, lift the boys. <laughs> so kind of lift your, lift your dangly bits up inside of your body and we'll go one step further and I'm going to say to you, shorten your penis. And now let it all go again. So I know that was quite out there language, but uh, it's a visual concept yeah. and it helps you really connect to the pelvic floor muscle and right up to the bladder neck. So the instruction again is lift the boys and shorten the penis. So that gets this nice contraction right to the front. I'm trying to do it myself right now, actually. It's it's just this squeezing sensation almost. (laughs) Yeah. So the trick is that you can do that little action. You feel that little lift and draw in, in your pelvis, but you don't squeeze your bum cheeks. You don't hold your breath. You don't lift your eyebrows and make funny faces. Mm Um, so you try to keep it subtle. No one else should know that you're doing it when you're doing it correctly. And how long should people be doing this for? So um, we recommend you do it two or three times a day. And each time that you do it, you try to do some where you just lift and let go, lift and let go, lift and let go. Let's say 10 quick ones like that. Mm-hmm. And then you might try 10 where you hold for a little bit longer. So you lift and you hold for as long as you can, maybe up to 10 seconds. But remember, don't hold your breath. So if you feel like you're just sitting there holding your breath and maybe the muscle let go, just stop, relax. Mm-hmm. Try again. Um, research has shown us that if you practice that three times a day for three months, your muscles will get stronger. And before I let you go, Leah, mm-hmm. at what what age should people be starting these pelvic floor exercises? Oh, you know, there's some thoughts that maybe we should start them in primary school. Mm-hmm. But really, um, I would say that the key times maybe that we start to link into this could be during our first pregnancies, women start to have issues usually around pregnancy, so maybe mm-hmm. in their in their 30s. Men, often it's later in life, like maybe in around the time of their retirement. Yeah. But if we start, I don't know, let's say start in your 20s. Yeah. That's there's brilliant. enough going on when you're Yeah, well, I'm definitely going to be doing my <laughs> pelvic floor exercises starting now because, you know, you've given us that description, so there's no excuses. Leah Bryan's yeah, of Leah Bryan's yeah. Physiotherapy, thank you so much for picking up the phone and taking that quick call. Hopefully that has helped people. With me now in studio is Mr. Fardado Kelly, consultant, paediatric, adolescent and reconstructive urological surgeon at Beacon Hospital and UPMC Ireland. Fardo, thank you so much for joining me in studio today. There is lots of texts coming in talking about the sensitive and embarrassing subject that they feel incontinence is and how they, they can't talk about it. But I think it, the good place to start for us is for anybody listening that may not fully understand what incontinence actually is. Like, How do you define incontinence? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, this is very exciting. Um, I, I think the first thing to to try and really do is actually define what what it is. And and you know the way I think about it, I mean, urinary incontinence in itself is is really just the loss of bladder control. But mm-hmm. it's such an umbrella term. There can be so many different causes for it. So you can you can broadly break it down to things like stress incontinence, which is where you end up leaking because you've exerted pressure on your bladder by coughing or sneezing. You can have urge incontinence, which is the one where, you, you know, I, I listened to a couple of your uh, Vox Pops there where mm-hmm. people are just kind of always looking for bathrooms and, and, and you know, sometimes they just don't make it. 
uh, you can have things, you can have mixed incontinence where you have both. Uh, and sometimes that can happen after oh, really? childbirth. You can, yeah, absolutely. And then um, you can have overflow incontinence where you don't empty the bladder fully. Uh, functional incontinence but might be a simple thing where you literally just, you don't have the dexterity to open your, your, your trousers quick enough. Or, uh, or sometimes you see this in, in, in children as well. Uh, I know we were listening to, to Leah there talking about holding on and, and doing pelvic floor muscle exercises. Sometimes kids do that automatically and they kind of do it too much to stop themselves from going all together and okay. then run into problems afterwards. So, um, And then the other way you can think about it, you, you can either be born with, with, a, with a reason as to why you might, you might have incontinence or you, it might be acquired. It can be continuous, or it can it can happen every yeah, now and so again. So there's so many different. There's types. so many different ways to do it. So I mean, I mean, the, the the real thing, you know, one of the big challenges for people like me is is to really try and find out what the underlying cause is, and then go from there. So because am I right in saying there's different treatments depending on what type of incontinence you have? Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the 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 broad base of treatments will be will be the same. I mean, the, you know, the first treatment for me, I mean, whenever I'm talking to people like this, is you know, it's history, 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 and mm-hmm. you just want to try and get as as much information as you can and really kind of delve in and find out what the what the what the cause is and uh, and then from there there's generally a fairly structured approach to this but you know incontinence affects about 423 million people worldwide over the age of 20 over the age of 20 yeah, so it's 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 not something where you kind of just think well you know this person might have gotten a little bit older and it's to be expected and sure let's not talk about it because yeah. like it's not a very delicate thing to talk about but it's um it, it's it's very common and, and but if i if i can ask then you're talking about how many millions i mean millions and millions of people yeah. all over the world uh, suffer from this but yet there's so much stigma and embarrassment attached to it why do you think that is i think it's p- part of it is is possibly just a cultural thing where people where people just found it uh, not polite to be speaking about stuff like that. I mean, there are parts in the world where, you know, if you were incontinent, you might actually be shunned from from society altogether. It's, um, and, you know, to to a certain extent, I suppose up to, up to recently enough, you know, the treatments have gotten so much better and the understanding has gotten so much better that it was, it was a very difficult thing to treat. And to, mm-hmm. a, you know, it, it kind of came to the point where, you know, say even 30, 40 years ago, whereas for for argument's sake, if you had your prostate taken out or something like that, you know, you just got on with, with, with the incontinence afterwards. I mean, it was just, you know, you were lucky to have the prostate out and that was about it. Now we're kind of, we're so much more involved in our own healthcare and, 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 and hopefully we can talk about it a bit more as well. And you were listening to Naomi earlier and she's one of many women who've been affected by incontinence after childbirth. But that's only one group of people who experience the problem. Like, who who can experience incontinence? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it can affect it, it can affect so many different uh, different groups anywhere from from childhood right up to the elderly. Um, it can affect people who um, might have you know underlying congenital issues such as things like maybe spina bifida or something like that, where you're just trying to manage things. Uh, it can it can happen in children. I see a lot of children in my clinic who who come in who have who have uh, wedding issues. Sometimes they don't even present with with with, with wedding. Sometimes it's you know the first time. The first time the parents are hearing about it is when the child is telling me in the clinic because they've come with urinary tract infections or abdominal pain or something like that. So it's um, it, it literally can happen to anyone, to be honest. And it it is very, as you said, it it, it maybe not so much socially anymore, but personally, it's very stigmatizing to people as well. We actually had a, a message in here as well. Can I ask, is it normal for teenagers to still wet the bed? My fourteen-year-old is still wetting the bed a few times a month, and who can I see about this? 
Yeah. I mean, that's it, incredibly traumatic as well for a teenager. It, it is. And, and, you know, if you have, you know, with, with children who are, say, um, around the age of 10 or so, you still 5 to 12 percent of those of those kids are still wetting the bed on a regular basis. Every few, every you know, a few times a month or, you know, once a month or once every couple of months. You know, for me, that, that, that tells me that the underlying maturity of the bladder, spinal cord, brain pathway seems to be for the most part there. And there's probably something else going on. And it's usually daytime symptoms as well that are driving the nighttime as well. So yeah, there, there is people they, uh, that, that, that they can see uh, for, for sure. And it's, um, again, it's, it's again, trying to figure out exactly what their patterns are and, 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 and trying to recreate them. And suppose people listening that may be experiencing continence to maybe start noticing your own patterns and if you are trying to uncover an underlying condition that, you know, you're you're becoming more aware. Like lots of people have been messaging us in and sending in voice notes about their stories and we have, actually have a few more to share. Hi Anna, just in response to the topic today, it affects every single aspect of my life. Something simple as pulling up a pair of jeans, running up and down the stairs after four kids, nearly 40, currently under um, a male consultant and basically was told at my last appointment couldn't be as bad as what I'm making it out to be at all. Anna, in relation to the bladder leakage, um, I'm 36 years of age, I'm after one baby and I actually can't drink anything if I'm heading for a walk or if I know I'm going somewhere in particular. Um, I also can't jump or skip or, you know, do normal things like moms that do, you know, heading out on the trampoline and things like that. I suppose I had a baby in COVID times and there was no actual support there for our new moms in relation to this. Um, it was kind of a paddle your own canoe kind of scenario. Um, I have touched base with my GP on it. Um, now I have found if I drink more water, my problem tends to go away. So if I drink um, two litres of water a day, my issue kind of resolves a small bit, but I'm still very conscious if I'm going anywhere at all um, that I know I won't be near a toilet. Hi Anna, so I have been dealing with incontinence issues for over 20 years. It started when I was in my early 20s um, where I would get a massive urge to pee and sometimes didn't make it. So I went to a urologist and had my bladder stretched. And fast forward a couple of years, I've had four kids. My pelvic floor is fine, but I am now suffering with a thing called urinary stress incontinence. I'm going to be doing a test called a urodynamics test next month. It is a mortifying uh, issue. It's not something that I have spoken to my friends about because I think it is still quite a tip taboo thing to be someone in their early 40s to be wearing incontinence product. I'd say an awful lot of people are in the same boat as me. Hi Anna. So I would find that leaks etc would affect how I play with the kids. If I run after them I might have start a bit of a leak. I have to make sure I have a pad on or you know make sure I go to the to- toilet properly before I do something that um, I know that will be active. Um, I did speak to a nurse when I was getting a spirit test before and she just mentioned about doing the exercises. So just wondering, is there any alternative or what advice um, you would give? I mean, it's heartbreaking listening to some of those people, particularly when they're saying that, you know, they may be feeling ignored or that there isn't help out there. And I know we're going to get to some of the treatments that can help people and I really hope they do. But 
before that, I do have a question for you because we're we're speaking about incontinence, and I suppose it's the the abnormal um, feeling of urination. But what is normal then, or usual, when it comes to going to the bathroom? Like, like realistically, like how much should we be weeing every day? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and and it's it's yeah, you're right. It's heartbreaking listening to those uh, mm. to those people talk about this stuff. I mean, you know, the advice that I usually give is that ideally we should be being somewhere between six and eight times a day. And and in general, um, if if you take you know that if, if I'm dealing with kids as I do on a daily basis, I, I kind of work out their bladder capacity based on their age. Mm-hmm. But as a ballpark, you know, your 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 bladder capacity is somewhere around you know four fifty five hundred mils, give or take. Uh, but most people shouldn't be peeing that amount because uh, right. that means your bladder is, is essentially holding. stretched. Mm-hmm. And, and the way the bladder works is that it can't, it, it just can't generate enough power. It's like an overstretched elastic band. So most people tend to pee about half full or so. Okay. That's when you start getting a strong urge to go. So, you know, if you if you have, say, uh, for argument's sake, a 500 mil bladder just to make the maths easy, then, you know, you, you'd be expecting to go about 240 to 260 mils six, eight times a day. Now, of mm-hmm. course, that's dependent on your on your hydration. But, you know, and it's, and it's that's that's part of what I'm talking about in, in terms of trying to recreate what's actually happening at mm-hmm. home. And, you know, it's, it's... But I think that's important for people to be aware that that's the normal. And maybe we all need to check in and become more aware and start checking how many times am I going to the bathroom? Is it a lot more than that? Is it less? And maybe even, you know, is is there merit for measuring out if you are concerned yeah, you about could. incontinence? You you could you definitely could and and it's funny sometimes you know I'd be talking to talking to a kid and 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 they may be peeing you know twice a day um, and they're saying oh right okay that seems a little bit on the low side you know let's measure this and then you know mum would pipe in kind of going oh no it's fine that's what I do okay so it's, so, <laughs> so they don't realise the problem because it's what happening absolutely I think, yeah so then you know, becoming aware of it is, is very important. I do want to move on because a lot of people are meshing mm. in with the question, how can incontinence be treated? Can it be treated? What's the starting point for them? It can. Um, it, it certainly can. And I, I think the, the, first, the first part is actually realising that something is not right. Uh, mm. and, um, and then, you know, education is definitely important with this. You know, in terms of an assessment, you know, as I mentioned before, the history is just, I can't emphasise how important that is to actually take time with someone mm. and figure out what's going on. And it's really difficult, especially with things like COVID and the the, the impact that that's had on health services and everyone is stretched and, and, and working above capacity. But certainly the history is really important. A physical exam is important. You can do, you can do urine tests. Um, and, you know, one thing I often do is a thing called a Euroflow test, which is basically just measures flow rates. You pee into a fancy into a fancy toilet and um, and, and it can just measure the, the speed and how much urine is coming out and it's completely non-invasive. What one of your um, what one of your guests was saying there was uh, she was going for a, a thing called a urine, urodynamics and that's a little mm-hmm. bit that's a little bit more invasive. That's that's called a CMG study and you generally need tiny electrodes and catheters okay. placed in for that to try and fill up the bladder and that measures pressure. Um, you know, it, it, other forms of treatment, and, and, and I know you'll be uh, d- discussing this and, and this will come over the next number of days as well, but, you know, bladder retraining is, is often very important. That's part of what Leah was saying earlier on in terms of the, the physiotherapy and, mm-hmm. and there's just such experts at this. Uh, modifying your diet, modifying your lifestyle, finding out what your triggers are. I mean, really? in, in some cases, you know, you can have you can have people who say, you, you know, whenever, whenever I have 
for argument's sake, spicy food or something like that. I just yeah, ended up running. Somebody said that actually to our tomato-based yeah. foods that Absolutely. they found their triggers. And it's trying to find what, what your triggers are and actually just paying attention to your, yeah. to your body and your diet. And, you know, it might be, you know, not that it's going to be perfect, but it might make it a little bit better. So, um, and then and then things like obviously physiotherapy, you know, sometimes I have things like play therapy, psychosocial therapy. There's medications you can take, the devices. Someone mentioned a, a, um, a pessary earlier on. Um, yeah. And then and then you can move all the way up to surgery. So moving and suppose speaking to your GP or to your, your physiotherapist would be a really good place to start. Absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, again, you know, you have shows like this where you're just increasing awareness and that's just, so critical and then you know there are things like schools that you can get advice in schools there's websites there's webinars there's there's various websites like, I mean things like oab.ie you know bladderandbowel.org that they all they all exist Great. um you can you can speak to obviously your primary care pr- practitioner gps nurses or nursing specialists are very skilled in this area you have specialist groups like the the association for continence advice um uh, you have you know you have specialists like like me doing this as well and and then understanding this it's not something you need to suffer with. Yeah, so I think that's definitely the strong takeaway message. This is not something you need to suffer with. So just, you know, have a conversation with anybody and, and seek the, the help that's out there. Mr. Farder O'Kelly, urological surgeon at Beacon Hospital and UPMC Ireland. Thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us today. There's been lots of advice there. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, there has been a lot of talk about stress and burnout this week following the shock resignation of the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. I know what this job takes and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. So next, we're going to be talking about something that while some people might view it as a bit airy-fairy, it can actually help to combat and reduce stress. So stay tuned because it might just change your life. Supercharged with Alec Geary on RTE Radio 1. Last week, we were talking about what we should be adding into our lives for 2023. And Charlie emailed us looking for some tips on meditation and mindfulness. So He asked, so we answered. With me now is health and wellness coach Miriam Hussey to give Charlie and the rest of us some answers. Thank you for taking our call, Miriam. You're very welcome, Anna. Thank you for having me. Charlie, like so many of us, wants to learn how to meditate properly. But before we get into that, I do have to ask, like, what are the benefits of meditation? Yeah, and I think that's a wonderful question, Anna, because before we do anything or practice anything, it's really important, I think, that we understand why. So mm-hmm. why would we do it in the first place? And meditation or mindfulness, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a kind of scary word for people, um, as we'll chat about in a few minutes, but it really, really is so powerful, not just for our mental and our emotional well-being, But it also has huge, huge benefits. And science now is just backing this up time and time again for our performance levels. If you want to think more clearly, have more focus um, and also really reducing things like anxiety and stress and overwhelm and the fear that we often feel in our lives. And beyond that, it also has amazing benefits for the physical body. So we now know that when when you meditate, it helps to reduce blood pressure, heart rate. It helps to rebalance and re-regulate our nervous system. And now more than ever, Anna, we are a society that really 
are living in a heightened state of stress mm-hmm. or fight or flight. And that really is when our nervous system gets knocked off balance and we go into what I call the red zone, which is where on the go all the time, we're busy, we have a million different tabs open in our mind. You know, if you had a laptop open with all the tabs yes. or the same on your phone, you know it drains the battery much quicker and it doesn't function as well. And we're similar to that. And the more tabs we have open, the more anxiety we feel, the more overwhelmed and stressed we are. So when we are knocked off balance and our nervous system is out of balance, all the other functionalities of the body also get pushed out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like our digestive system gets compromised, our immune system gets lowered, the hormones of our reproductive system are also affected, yeah. um, and our heart rate and our breathing. And, you know, I, I think we all have experienced, you know, if you're feeling stressed or anxious, you would know that you start to breathe more quickly, mm-hmm. quite rapid. You tend to get sweaty, you know, you're, you get physical symptoms um, as well as the emotional symptoms that we feel so and meditation or mindfulness is the one of the most powerful tools that we have to help recenter and rebalance our nervous system so then like we're hearing all these benefits and and i suppose the importance of keeping our nervous system in check because it has a knock-on impact and we know that meditation can help that so then why do you think meditation is often disregarded or you know treated as a bit woo-woo by some people I think, to be honest, because, you know, we have this maybe this perception that in order to meditate, you have to be sitting easy cross-legged in an orange robe with the shaven head, Mm -hmm. you know, up in the Himalayas mountains, you know. Um, And that's that's kind of the the perception that we may have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think back even to 10 years ago, like yoga was similar. I mean, if you were doing yoga 10 years ago, you were a bit mad, you know, what's (laughs) that a bunch of stretching, you know. But now we understand the benefits. And no more than physical exercise. We all know the power that that has. I think maybe in 10 years time, hopefully we'll be looking at meditation similar to exercise and knowing the benefits of Mm -hmm. it. So let's jump into tips then for people. I mean, I know one of them that you believe that practice being mindful first thing in the morning is important. How can people do that? So I think really in order to make it practical and sustainable, it has to be simple and easy. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about simplicity. So before you even get out of bed in the morning, a really easy thing to do is try to incorporate what I call meditative moments into your day. So some people get overwhelmed with trying to carve out 20 minutes to sit down, you know, and meditate. Mm -hmm. But you can actually bring in these meditative moments into your day so simply. So for example, before you get out of bed in the morning, just place your two hands on your heart and start to do some deep belly breathing. Diaphragmatic breathing or belly breathing is simply where you breathe in through the nose. Your belly rises up like you're blowing up a balloon. There's a little pause at the top of that inhale. And then a big, nice sigh release out through your exhale. If you were to do those, even five of those, it is a powerful way to shift you back into what I call the green zone of the nervous system, which is where rest, repair, recovery and healing can happen. Okay. By placing your hands on your heart, you're also activating your oxytocin hormone, which is that snuggle, feel good, happy hormone. And add into that just three things you're grateful for. That in itself is a powerful, powerful meditative moment that can set you up for the day. And it can, you can do that in 30 seconds to mm-hmm. a minute. That's I can tell you now that is going to be on my to-do list for the coming week. And you can check back in with me to follow up for accountability purposes if necessary. Can I ask then, you you. <laughs> you believe like, the, like you know, the starting point for meditation, taking the first step can often be the hardest. So what would you advise as the starting point? So I would suggest just carving out five minutes to start small, five to 10 minutes in your day. Morning is a wonderful time to practice it. 
And what I would suggest is if you're new to meditation, try maybe using a guided meditation to start. Okay. This is where you're listening to somebody else's voice. Um, it's not too scary. You know, you can just kind of be guided along. Um, powerful ways to start would be meditations that focus on the breath. So simply belly breathing, as I mentioned, or sometimes you count to four, called a box breath, where you inhale for the count of four, then you hold for four at the top of the inhale, and then you simply exhale for the count of four, and again, a pause at the end. Or other really nice, simple ways to start would be doing something like a body scan meditation or progressive muscle relaxation, where you're getting the body and all of the muscles and the tension and the tightness that we often hold through busy thoughts, they get infected into the muscles and the tensions in the body, and you're just calming them down through breathing and relaxing. Other ways, you know, I would really suggest is um, you can do it day to day. As I mentioned, you don't have to be easy cross-legged wearing an old robe. Mm -hmm. You can be adding in these mindful moments throughout your day. So as you're, you know, in the queue getting your lunch, you know, you can stamp your two feet on the ground, ground yourself and take a couple of slow, deep breaths. So you're resetting the nervous system regularly throughout the day. I always say to people, before you go to work or open your laptop, stop, pause and take five deep breaths. Mm -hmm. Before you close down the laptop in the evening, stop, pause and take five deep breaths. Mm -hmm. When you're in the shower, take five deep breaths. So you can be adding these in, as I call mindful meditative moments. And what's happening then, Anna, is instead of you know, flying off the handle when a challenge comes towards you. So by building in these small mindful moments throughout the day, when a challenge comes your way, and we will all be faced with challenges because that's the reality of being a human being. We have up days, we have great days, and then we have challenging days mm -hmm. and stressful times. But when they come, if you're more centered and more grounded from doing these mindful, you know, mini meditative moments, you will react to the situations with much more clarity, much much more centeredness. You're less likely to fly off the handle and roar and shout at the kids. You know, you'll be a nicer person to be around <laughs> in general. Um, so they can really calm us and keep us centered and keep us grounded. Um, and that can really help in all situations yeah. at life. I actually find sometimes I find doing those, like, which I didn't even realise, that those meditative moments, those mindful moments in the car sitting in traffic, sometimes you do need to take a, a few deep breaths when you're on the M50. But it does help, like just taking a few deep breaths. Absolutely. And, you know, other other simple mindful ways are just putting the phone away. You know, mm -hmm. when you're sitting down having your lunch or in the queue for something, you know, we, we're all guilty of taking the phone out and scrolling and trying to fit a million replies to yeah. emails and WhatsApps and all of these things and get as many things as we can done. But all of that is pushing the red button and putting us into fight or flight. And it's recirculating the hormones of cortisol and stress and mm -hmm. adrenaline. And that's keeping us locked in this fight or flight state. If we can put the phone away for even that one minute and take five deep, slow belly breaths, it's amazing how it can center us, it can calm us. And we're just um, more capable of then facing the day ahead. And can I ask you for people that might like to know where they can find these guided meditations or body scans, anywhere you'd recommend? Yeah, so obviously you can literally type into YouTube, you know, a 10 minute morning meditation and you will get, you'll find meditations. But there are lots of apps like Calm, Insight Timer is another one, or Headspace. And Anna, we have loads of meditations um, on our own Instagram pages, myself and my husband, Jerry, and on our Soul Space page. And also we run a Soul Space community, um, which is, you know, a community where they get loads of resources every week. And meditation is a big part of that. So there's hundreds 
hundreds of meditations that people can click on and go back to time and time again. Brilliant. So start small, start with your guided meditations, focus on, you know, your mindful breathing, set the scene, meditate anywhere and just don't forget to put that phone away. Miriam, thank you so much for all of your helpful tips. And like Miriam said, you can find Miriam and Jerry Hussey on Instagram at soulspace the experience at soulspace underscore the underscore experience or at soulspace.ie. Time now to take a look at some health news and back to give us her knowledgeable insights on some of the latest health and medical stories is health and medical journalist Danielle Barron. Danielle, welcome back to the show. We're going to dive straight in because I know you have plenty of stories for us. What is your first story? Okay, so it was really interesting that you were talking about meditation, Anna, because one of the stories that I actually came across this week was proof that regular deep meditation, uh, the, the real stuff uh, mm-hmm. practiced for several years, may actually help to regulate the gut microbiome. So you, you've probably heard of the gut microbiome, yeah, have you, in, so in the last while? And Yes, and it's becoming like we're really learning how important it is. Like it's it's all the microorganisms in our body and the balance of it is so critical to our physical and mental health. And this particular research found that a group of Buddhist monks in Tibet had completely different microbes than those of their neighbours who weren't doing their meditative chants every day for years. And this is all linked to obviously, like Miriam was saying, a lower risk of lower risk of anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease. I mean, I think it's quite obvious. I mean, you know yourself, the link between the gut and the brain. You feel sick when you get bad news. Obviously, staying zen and chilled as much as possible is really good for our overall well-being. I think everyone would agree with that. But there's actually so much research going on in this. And UCC has a really good um, program on this of, of research. And one of their studies actually found that your diet can impact your stress levels. So it kind of goes the opposite way as well. So, you know, this this link between the gut and the brain, you know, goes both ways. It's obviously really critical. And knowing more about it just means we might get better treatments for yeah. more physical and mental health conditions. Yeah. So for people that might be sceptics of meditation, well, there you go, there is a yeah. bit of science to back it up. Now let's move on yeah. to mental health. Um, what are chatbots and how are they helping? Okay, so this is a really, I think this is fascinating because, you know, AI, it's coming into everything and mental health is not immune to its powers. Um, But you've obviously, we've all encountered chatbots in the last few years. You might be trying to access customer service on a Mm -hmm. website and a little window, you know, pops up, can I help you with that? You might think you're talking to a person. I know I probably did. I was a bit naive, but it's actually artificial intelligence. And in this case, it's known as a chatbot. But where they're using this um, is in helping, you know, those mental health conditions So we know there's a gaping chasm between the mental health services we have and the level of services that we actually need. And, you know, we think that chatbots might be able to help bridge that gap, whether it's kind of by triad, you know, picking out the patients that really need the care or even just, you know, providing that talk therapy to people. Um, I've written before on uh, work that Ulster University has been doing. They've developed this chat pal. It's it's a new chatbot and they're working on it with obviously with mental health professionals, but it's it's available 24-7, you see, and it's that access. That is crucial. And it's really simple right now, but it does show empathy. And the feedback shows that users really like talking to it, even if they know it's a chatbot, because, you know, sometimes they felt more comfortable chatting to the bot rather than a person. Mm. They felt like there was no judgment and they could open up more. Yeah. So any type of chat is good, whether it's with a human or with a robot. And finally, Uh your last story, it's about reversing the signs of ageing. A lot of people are tuning in now and they're they're anxious to know what it is that this is about. 
Yeah, I was all over this one. Um, so I, there was like a lot of talk this week about this uh, research carried out in Harvard, which we all know, like Harvard's obviously, um, you know, very unbelievably so reputable. Yes, but apparently the researcher who worked on this particular piece of research where they reprogrammed the cells of mice using genetic engineering techniques, they found that those mice lived actually twice as long as the control group, so the group that didn't get the genetic engineering. Um, so it caused a big stir, but it, it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, so it hasn't been true that scientific ringer. And then the lead researcher turned out he's, he's kind of controversial when it comes to anti-aging. Okay. So I moved away from that and I found much more enticing prospect with this new micro-needle patch. So this is a patch with lots of tiny, tiny needles and it delivers mRNA or messenger RNA. Remember, we all had a crash course on mRNA during the, the COVID vaccine rollout. Mm, yes. yes. So it actually made ageing mice produce collagen again, which we all know means you improve your wrinkles. So I don't know mm. about you, Anna, but I will be first. I don't in know. Queue. Danielle, a patch <laughs> of needles now. I don't I don't know if I would be up for that just yet, but maybe we'll talk about that again down the line. Danielle Barron, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about your top health stories of the week. What a jam-packed show that was. Thank you. A huge thank you, I have to say, to my production team for keeping it all going this evening. A massive thank you to all of our guests and to everybody that I think had the bravery, I think it's fair to say that, to send in their voice notes. Thanks for all the questions. You can listen back to this show at rte.ie forward slash supercharged or on the Radio Player app. And please share the link with anybody who might get benefit from hearing the advice. Get in touch with us anytime, supercharged at rte.ie or you can reach out to me too on Instagram at Anna G. Quirk, whether it's questions, comments or even suggestions for upcoming shows. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening and remember, mind yourself and mind each other. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Supercharged with Anna Geary is an Ojo production for RTE Radio 1.